everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, or more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I hope everyone has had a pretty great week. Um, I have no real news to give you guys this week about uh, Stephen King. I guess no real King news to give you anyway. I'm recording this episode on Wednesday, the 23rd. I usually try to record Thursdays or Fridays um, just in case uh, anything new comes out about the stand adaptation, but I have a very busy Thursday and Friday coming up, so I'm recording tonight on Wednesday, and today... Uh, Hulu released the first three episodes of Castle Rock Season 2. I have yet to be able to watch these, but I'm really excited to see them this weekend. Um, And I'm also still churning along with The Institute. And this is very upsetting to me because usually when a King novel comes out, um, I have it done within a couple days and then I can write about it or talk about it. And things have just been so busy September and October that I haven't really had a lot of time to read. Um, I try to read a couple chapters the night before I fall asleep, but I am enjoying it quite a bit and I'm hoping to be done with it this weekend so I can add my review of the Institute into next week's episode. That being said, that's really all I have. Um, it's just me telling you guys how much of a fail I am right now with King stuff, (laughs) but I did get to read chapter 26 of The Stand and I'm really excited to discuss it. Um, this is a pretty intense chapter And it's kind of long, so I think that we should just probably um, jump right into things. And I'm going to give you a quick recap of Chapter 25. Um, With Captain Tramps infecting Shoyo and the rest of the country, Nick Andros dealt with the death of two of the men who beat and robbed him. He finally lets the third, Mike Childress, go free. Um, I think Nick knows now that the shit has hit the fan with Captain Tramps with the super flu. Um, And, you know, it's morally questionable to keep uh, Childress in prison Um, after he's clearly showing symptoms of the super flu and his two quote-unquote friends have already died in their cells. So he lets Mike go and uh, Sheriff Baker's wife, Janie, she also passes away, uh, leaving Nick to carry out his promise to bury her. So here in chapter 26, King shows us just how the rest of the country is handling this. Um, He gives us, I wonder if the word is vignette, he gives us these little vignettes, Um, taking us to various points in the country. Um, This is a really disturbing chapter. Um, I had to read it a couple times before I could write down my thoughts on it. While Nick watched the news, tried to dismiss any real concern about Captain Tripps, there are other people like Nick who were not fooled by the government trying to placate them with lies. And we start here at the University of Kentucky in Louisville. Students wake up to posters plastered all over the campus, and these signs explain the truth about Project Blue. You know, they have the attention, attention, attention. Um, The posters say that they're being lied to by the government, uh, by the press, who has been co-opted by the forces of the, quote, pig paramilitary. The administration of the university is lying to them, as are the um, infirmary doctors under the administration's orders. The sign also says, one, there is no super flu vaccine. Two, 
Superflu is not a serious disease. It is a deadly disease. Three, susceptibility may run as high as 75%. Four, Superflu was developed by the forces of the U.S. Pig paramilitary and dispersed by accident. Five, the U.S. Pig paramilitary now means to cover up their murderous plunder, even if it means 75% of the population will die. All revolutionary people, greetings. The time of our struggle is now. Unite, strive, conquer. There is a meeting in the gym at 7 p.m. You got to hand it to who created whoever created these posters because they're pretty much on point, except 75% of the population, oh, no, no, no. It's a much higher. Probably 99% of the population will be wiped out. At a television station in Boston, three newscasters and six technicians have planned a coup. Six of them are already ill with Captain Trips, but they've collected about a dozen handguns. They have nothing to lose. The entire broadcast facility has been blocked off, cordoned, um, by the Army. Bob Palmer, who anchored the morning news, is giving a, quote, soothing copy to read um, by one of the Army noncoms in the room. And essentially what they're doing is they are forcing Palmer to lie to the American public. Um, to talk about the super flu as if it's nothing. Kind of like what Nick saw last week in Chapter 25. He watched these newscasters kind of, you know, looking to the side a little bit. They seem nervous. It's because that what's happening there was happening here in Boston as well. The, the Army is there. They're watching, and they are telling the newscasters what to say. Bob Palmer and the other eight employees of WBZ-TV are not having it any longer. Just after Palmer began to read... He and the other eight employees take the soldiers by surprise and disarm them. Other personnel on this floor join in. They clear out the floor of uh, the army and they lock the doors. When the soldiers in the lobby realize what's happening, they attempt to take the stairs as the elevators are shut down. A janitor named Charles Yorkin fires a shot over their heads, which seems to do the trick in keeping them at bay for the moment. While on live television, Palmer holds a gun. And he looks into the camera to the thousands of viewers watching at home, and he says, quote, Fellow citizens of Boston and Americans in our broadcast area, something both grave and terribly important has just happened in this studio, and I'm very glad it has happened here first in Boston, the cradle of American independence. For the last seven days, this broadcast facility has been under guard by men purporting to be National Guardsmen. Men in army khaki armed with guns have been standing beside our cameramen in our control rooms beside our teletypes. Has the news been managed? I am sorry to say that this is the case. I have been given a copy and forced to read it almost literally with gun to my head. The copy I have been reading has to do with the so-called superflu epidemic and all of it is patently false. Our cameramen have taken film that has either been confiscated or deliberately exposed. Our reporters' stories have disappeared, yet we do have film, ladies and gentlemen, and we have correspondents right here in the studio. Not professional reporters, but eyewitnesses to what may be the greatest disaster this country has ever faced, and I do not use those words lightly. We are going to run some of this film for you now. All of it was taken clandestinely, and some of it is of poor quality. Yet, we here who have just been liberated, who have just liberated our own television station, think you may see enough, more indeed than you might have wished. Palmer blows his nose, 
He's flushed and feverish, but he tells someone off camera to run the footage. And then viewers see shots of Boston General Hospital, the crowded wards, patients on the floor, nurses trying to help the sick while they too are sick. Some of them are sobbing. There are shots of armed guards on the streets and buildings being broken into. And then Palmer suggests that if viewers at home have small children to ask them to leave the room. The next shot is of a truck backing up to a pier at Boston Harbor, an army truck. Below the truck, below the pier, there is a barge with canvas tarps. Soldiers in gas masks, these men pull back the sheet covering the rear of the truck and bodies begin to pour out of the truck, off the pier and onto the barge. Men, women, children, police officers, nurses. It's a never-ending cartwheel of bodies. And at some point, it becomes obvious that the army men are using pitchforks to push the bodies out of the truck. And this is a really horrific scene that King paints for us. We already know how terrible this superflu is, how quickly it spreads, the nature of the virus, how it mutates and kills. Um, you know, when we last week in, in chapter 25, we saw through Nick's point of view, um, just how Billy and Vince died with their necks swollen, they're black. So for a while there, it seemed like the government was doing a pretty good job at keeping this a secret. But Starkey was right. General Starkey was right that there's nothing they could do anymore. It's out. Even so, the Army has hijacked news stations. They're forcing journalists to read falsified information. People are dying by the thousands now, and they're still trying to keep it covered up. I mean, they're dumping bodies off of a pier onto a barge like they're nothing more than garbage. And it's really awful to read what the government will do here to try and hide their mistake and save their asses. So Palmer continues to talk for about two hours. Um, finally, the transmission is taken down at 11.16 a.m. Palmer and the others on the sixth floor are immediately executed for treason against their government, the United States of America. In West Virginia, a small-town newspaper called the Durban Call Clarion. Um, he, th this newspaper is very small. The editor is James D. Hoglis. He has managed to keep this small newspaper successful with his anti-establishment editorials. And despite having a handful of his own paper boys, Hoglis chooses to deliver today's paper on his own. It's an extra edition of the Call Clarion. And it's the first um, extra edition since 1980, when the Ladybird Mine exploded, killing 40 miners. This edition is just one page. The headline is, Government Forces Try to Conceal Plague Outbreak. The article reads, It has been revealed to this reporter by a reliable source that the flu epidemic, sometimes called choking sickness or tube neck here in West Virginia, is in reality a deadly mutation of the ordinary flu virus created by the government for purposes of war. And, in direct disregard of the revised Geneva Accords concerning germ and chemical warfare, accords which representatives of the United States signed seven years ago. The source, who is an Army official now stationed in Wheeling, also said that promises of a soon forthcoming vaccine are, quote, a bald-faced lie. No vaccine, according to this source, has yet been developed. Citizens, this is more than a disaster or a tragedy. It is the end of all hope in our government. If we have indeed done such a thing to ourselves, then the sentence trails off. Unfortunately, Hoglis is also sick. 
It took all of his remaining energy to even write the editorial, but he still goes from house to house and he leaves a copy of the newspaper despite not knowing if the houses are even still occupied. And if they are, who knows if the person inside has the energy to even open the door to collect the paper, let alone read it. After Hoglis delivers to every house, he has about 25 copies remaining. Hoglis lets them disappear into the wind, letting the wind take them where it would. He thought about his source, a major with dark, haunted eyes. This man had been transferred from something top secret called Project Blue in California. He told Hoglis everything he knew. And Hoglis knew that the major would eventually use the gun that the man kept fingering at his side. Too tired to drive back home, Hoglis stays in his car and sleeps. About an hour and a half later, he dies. In Los Angeles, the Times ran about 26,000 copies of their own one-page extra before the officers in charge realized that they aren't actually printing ad circulars, as they had been told they were. The officer's reprisal is swift and bloody. According to the FBI, radical revolutionaries used dynamite at the LA Times presses and killed 28 of their workers. The FBI didn't have to explain how the explosion had somehow put bullets into the heads of all 28 employees because their bodies were mingled with the other victims of the superflu and they were buried at sea. However, 10,000 copies of this edition gets out, and that's more than enough because the headline reads, West Coast and Grip of Plague Epidemic, Thousands Flee Deadly Superflu, Government Cover-Up Certain. The Times article reveals that the men claiming to be National Guardsmen are actually career soldiers. Their job is to reassure residents of L.A. that the superflu isn't that bad. It's only slightly worse than the London and Hong Kong strains. Of course, the reassurances given to residents are from soldiers who are wearing portable respirators. So, you know what, it's not very um, comforting um, to be told that, oh, there's nothing to worry about. It's just a simple flu, but, you know, these guys are wearing respirators to protect themselves. Then the Times claim that while the president is set to give a speech from the Oval Office, he'll actually be speaking from a bunker deep inside the White House, mocked up to look like the Oval Office. His press secretary claims that this rumor is hysterical, vicious, and totally unfounded. Advanced copies of the speech indicate that the president will essentially, quote, spank the American people for overreacting. And he compares the superflu panic to the War of the Worlds radio broadcast in the 30s. Um, really quick side note, the War of the Worlds radio panic happened in October of 1938 when a radio drama broadcast of uh, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells confused some listeners who took the broadcast as real reporting and thought that there was truly an alien invasion of America when there wasn't. Um, some people say, you know, around 1 million Americans had panicked, ran out of their homes, but there's some indication now that those numbers were extremely exaggerated. Um, anyway, that's a really fascinating moment in history. So you guys should Google that and, you know, read up on it a little bit. I had fun doing that today. In any case, that is what King is referring to here with the president. And I guess the president during the super flu outbreak, um, might call these reports of the plague epidemic fake news. The times claim that they have five questions that they want the president to answer. One, 
Why has the Times been enjoined from printing the news by thugs in Army uniforms in direct violation of his constitutional right to do so? 2. Why have the following highways, US-5, US-10, and US-15, been blocked off by armored cars and troop carriers? 3. If this is a, quote, minor outbreak of the flu, why has martial law been declared for Los Angeles and surrounding areas? 4. If this is a minor outbreak of the flu, then why are barge trains being towed out into the Pacific and dumped? And do these barges contain what we are afraid they contain and what informed sources have assured us they do contain? The dead bodies of plague victims. 5. Finally, if a vaccine really is to be distributed to doctors in area hospitals early next week, why has not one of the 46 physicians that this newspaper contacted for further details heard of any delivery plans? Why has not one clinic been set up to administer flu shots? Why has not one of the 10 pharmaceutical houses we called gotten fright invoices or government flyers on this vaccine? We call upon the president to answer these questions in his speech. And above all, we call upon him to end these police state tactics and this insane effort to cover up the truth. In Duluth, a man in khaki shorts and sandals walks up and down um, Pied, Piedmont, Piedmont? Piedmont Avenue. And he has um, some ash smeared on his forehead. And he is wearing a sandwich board. It reads on the front. The time of the disappearance is here. Christ the Lord returneth soon. Prepare to meet your God. On the back, Behold the hearts of the sinners were broken. The great shall be abased and the abased made great. The evil days are at hand. Woe to thee, O Zion. This man is beaten by four young men, all of whom are sick. They beat this man with his own sandwich board, and when they run off, they scream at him, Teach you to scare people, you half-baked freak. And then we come to Missouri. In Missouri, um, Springfield, Missouri, the highest-rated radio morning show is KLFT's Speak Your Peace with Ray Flowers. Um, In the 1994 miniseries for ABC, Ray Flowers is played by the great Kathy Bates in an uncredited role. And I think it would be really great if they had her back. (laughs) I know she's older, but it'd be really great to have her back in the CBS All Access adaptation playing the same role. Um, Anyway, back to the book. In the novel, this is a man. um, But on the morning of June 26th, a day after Nick buried Janie Baker, Ray is the only KLFT employee to show up for work. He knows what's going on out there. um, And yes, he's scared. You know, everyone Ray knew is sick. Um, While there were no troops in Springfield, he does know about the National Guard in Kansas City and St. Louis, and they are there to stop the spread of panic and prevent looting. Ray feels okay. He's feeling pretty good, Um, so maybe he's immune as well. But he does have his microphone and six phone lines. He lights a cigarette and locks the studio door. He then locks the booth door as well, and he begins his show. He begins the show um, talking about the super flu also known as Tube Neck or Captain Trips. It's all the same thing. He's ready to talk and he's ready to listen. Ray is doing away with commercials today and the time delay. He just wants people to call in and tell them their experiences. Tell them, tell Ray what they've seen. As he speaks, a 20-man patrol unit is dispatched to take care of Ray Flowers. When two soldiers refuse, they're shot on the spot. 
It takes the soldiers about an hour to get to Springfield. And in that time, Ray takes calls from a doctor who explains that people are dying like flies, who thinks the government lied about the, va- lied about the vaccine. Um, a nurse confirms bodies are being taken out of Kansas City by the truckload. He gets some calls from very sick people, some delirious. Uh, one woman claims that it's aliens. Um, a farmer says that he saw an army squad digging a huge ditch near Kansas City. And there are more calls with stories to tell. But then the army arrives, and they demand that Ray open the door. Ray wants to keep taking calls, so the army uses rifle fire to get into the studio. Ray describes this to his listeners, what he's seeing. He says several soldiers soldiers have just broken into the outer office. They're fully armed. They look like they're ready to start a mop-up operation in France 50 years ago, except for the respirators on their faces. The soldiers demand that Ray shut it down, but Ray refuses. He goes back to the microphone and tells his listeners that he's been ordered to shut down the transmission, the transmitter, but he has refused. The men are acting like Nazis, not American soldiers. The sergeant brings up his gun, uh, but one of his men tried to stop him. You can't just shoot a civilian. The sergeant orders Ray's death if he says one more word. Ray tells his listeners, I think they're going to shoot me, which they do through the glass of the booth. The sergeant fires into the control panel to kill the transmission as well. When the sergeant turns back to his men, three of them open fire on him, killing him in a hailstorm of bullets. When they've quieted and realized what they've done, they're shell-shocked. Quote, their faces dazed and uncomprehending, although later they would only wish they had done it sooner. All of this was some deadly game, but it wasn't their game. There's a woman on the line still, telling Ray that she listens to him all the time, and not to let them bully him. She's unaware that Ray has just been slaughtered in the booth by Marines. There's a message then sent to a commanding officer, Creighton. Len Creighton, do you guys remember him? He was put in charge after General Starkey was relieved of his duties. This message is uh, to Creighton and claims that New York, the cordon, is still operative as they dispose of bodies. Um, It's relatively quiet there, although the cover story is quickly deteriorating. Nothing they can't handle. The superflu is keeping most people inside. However, 50% of the troops manning the barricades are now sick. Most are active and capable of performing their duties, but there are fires in Harlem, on 7th Avenue, in Shea Stadium. Soldiers are beginning to desert their posts. Those who do are being shot. The situation is still viable, but deteriorating slowly. In Boulder, Colorado, um, a rumor begins that at a um, weather center, basically, an air testing center, um, is really a biological warfare installation. On the night of June 26, thousands of Boulder residents begin to leave. Soldiers are sent out to stop them, but, quote, it was like sending a man with a whisk broom to clean out the Augean stables. Over 11,000 civilians make it out of Boulder, and around 11.15 that night, a young man, a young radical named Desmond Romage, plans, uh, he plants about 16 pounds of explosives near the air testing center location. Um, apparently, these explosives were meant for, um, you know, courts and legislation offices, but uh, he takes it over to this um, air testing center. I guess he probably believed that it was a biological warfare installation. And, you know, the explosives are good, but the timer's not. 
and this man is vaporized with some weather equipment and particle-for-particle pollution measuring gadgets. Another message to Creighton from a man named Gareth in Little Rock, Rock, Arkansas. A man named Brodsky was found working in a storefront clinic. He was neutralized and executed for treason against the United States. Some of those being treated by Brodsky tried to interfere with this. Fourteen civilians were shot. Six killed and three of Gareth's men were wounded. 25% of soldiers still on duty are ill with the superflu. 15% 15% are AWOL. Gareth mentions Sergeant Peters being assassinated by his own men. That was back with the KLFT Ray Flowers incident. And the situation is deteriorating rapidly. At Kent State University in Ohio, 2,000 students begin to riot, all of whom have been quarantined since June 22nd, four days prior. Um, there is a transcript of what has occurred here between 7.16 p.m. and 7.22 p.m. Orders are given to block the students from leaving. More and more keep coming from either side. Um, These soldiers are not prepared for this. But the order is no resistance. Block them. The students are carrying signs. It says, soldiers throw down your guns. Some say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There is a campus security chief named Richard Burley. He chimes in on the uh, communications radio, asking the colonel in charge, Albert Phillips, what his intentions are with these students. Phillips replies that his orders are to contain those present on campus to the campus. If they intend to break out of quarantine, they will not be allowed. It's very clear that he's indicating he will murder these students, and the security chief is outraged. These are just kids. They are unarmed American kids. The students throw rocks and the soldiers open fire. Kids are being mowed down by machine guns as they run for their lives. And then it seems as though the soldiers then turn on each other and things spiral out of control very quickly. The last thing heard on the tape um, is the sound of heavy coughing thumps of mortar rounds. This was a really upsetting snippet for me. Not only because, you know, um, Kent State has the history of the students who were shot by the National Guard when they were protesting, um, but just this day and age with school violence and gun violence, um, obviously this entire chapter is very disturbing, very upsetting, um, but it just seems to be getting worse. Um, Every single snippet that we get to, it's just, it's building this crescendo of horribleness. Um, and this is probably why I had to read it a couple times. Um, a few of these passages were fairly upsetting. And, you know, next is a transcript taken from a high-frequency radio band in California um, between 717 and 720. The conversation is between a soldier named David and Lynn Creighton. L.A. is in flames. Everything is out of control. All of David's men are sick or AWOL. Some are rioting and looting with the rest of the population. David is hiding in a Bank of America, but hundreds are trying to get inside at him. Len replies, things fall apart. The center does not hold. David doesn't understand what he's saying. Len dismisses this quickly and moves on. David cannot get out, but he plans on shooting as many people as he can if they get inside. The last thing heard on this tape is glass breaking and screaming, um, small arms fire, perhaps a rifle, a scream, and then nothing. 
Another transcript from an Army band in San Francisco between 7.28 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Sergeant First Class Roland Gibbs has now announced himself Brother Zeno. He claims himself President of the Republic of Northern California, and he is in control now. If any officers in the field try to defy his orders, Zeno orders the soldiers on the ground to shoot them like dogs in the street. And then there is the sound of machine gun fire, screams, and then dead air. After this, Major Alfred Nunn is heard on the tape. He is taking provisional control of the U.S. forces in San Francisco. The traitors in the HQ have been dealt with. He is in command now. Deserters and defectors will be dealt with as before. There's more gunfire on the tape, more screaming, someone shouting, get them all, death to the war pigs. More gunfire, and then silence. In Portland, Maine, at 9.16 p.m., those still well enough to watch TV have the station turned to WCSH-TV. They are watching in horror as a large black man in a pink leather loincloth and a Marine officer's hat performs 62 public executions. His colleagues are also naked, wearing loincloths, and something to show that they were once in the Army as well. They are armed with automatic and semi-automatic weapons. They have their weapons turned on soldiers. The large black man is smiling quite a bit. Bit. Um, he pulls out a driver's license from a large glass drum and calls the name PFC Franklin Stern. Stern is found. He's brought screaming and protesting to the large man. He tries to uh, negotiate, I guess, tries to tell him he's with him. But Stern is shot in the head, and another man in the booth pushes the applause button. The audience slash prisoners have to applaud wildly due to all of the guns trained on them at that moment. And this goes on until about 1045 when four army squads break into the studio. Two dying groups of soldiers immediately went to war. And this is all caught on live television, mind you. Um, there is gunfire everywhere. The unarmed soldiers, instead of being rescued, are just simply shot to death much sooner than they would have be would have been um, had these other army squads not come in. The gunfire goes on for about five minutes, and it's very gruesome um, how King describes this. And you can just imagine being sitting at home and watching this unfold on television. Only screams remain after the gunfire falls silent. At 11.05, the people still watching no longer see carnage but a cartoon TV sign that says, sorry, we're having problems. As the evening wound towards its close, that was true of almost everyone. Finally, Des Moines at 11.30 p.m., an old Buick covered in religious stickers cruises the deserted downtown streets. There were fires and there had been riots earlier in the day that cleaned out and gutted the area. Des Moines looked like the aftermath of some monster New Year's Eve party after sodden sleep had claimed the last of the revelers. There's a loudspeaker on top of this Buick's roof. As the Buick drives down the streets, Mother Maybelle Carter begins to sing, Keep on the Sunny Side. When the Buick would hit a body in the street, the record would skip. At 20 minutes till midnight, the Buick pulled over and idled. And then it began to roll again, but now it was Elvis singing the old rugged cross. The president, at 9 p.m., finally gives his speech. 
It is unseen in many areas. He is essentially denying that this superflu is anything serious. He tells people to stay home, get some rest, you'll feel better within a week at the most. He denies that the United States is responsible for the superflu. After all, you know, they signed the revised Geneva Accords on poison gas and germ warfare in good conscience and good faith. This is just a vicious rumor set about by radical anti-establishment groups. The president asks that everyone remain calm. A flu vaccine will be available for those not already on the mend. There is no truth to the rumors that the cities have been occupied by the army or that news is being managed. However, as he's speaking, the president is coughing and sneezing. Yes, the president of the United States has contracted Captain Tripps, even while he's telling the American people not to believe what they're seeing with their own eyes. There is graffiti written on the front of a church in Atlanta that reads, Dear Jesus, I will see you soon. Your friend America. P.S. I hope you will still have some vacancies by the end of the week. And with that, we've reached the end of chapter 26. And excuse my language, but holy shit. (laughs) What an intense chapter. Just hit after hit after hit of how quickly this country spiraled into blood and chaos. And it reaches all over the country. Journalists attempting to inform the public about what's really going on. There's people being slaughtered by the U.S. military on the basis of treason. It gets so bad that soldiers begin to turn on each other or they go AWOL. Some go crazy. They lose their minds. And it's a rapid descent into madness. You can see it so clearly in your mind reading this chapter. Um, Soldiers bursting into the KFLT studios to murder Ray Flowers because he's taking phone calls from people experiencing the horrors of Captain Tripp's firsthand. A small-town paper editor is trying to deliver one last edition, um, explaining this, explaining the superflu before he dies in his car. A newscaster and his colleagues having to stage a coup against the Army to inform their viewers the truth about the flu and what the government is trying to hide. And then the president telling the American people not to believe their eyes and ears as he coughs and sneezes his way through a phony speech. And these passages are gruesome and they're effective. Um, I actually, I really did. I got upset a couple times reading this and I had to take a break. But I could see the picture. I could picture everything in my head. Um, the city's on fire. Soldiers abandoning their posts, people looting and rioting. Um, You know, what else do they have to lose? Civilians are being murdered in the streets, and it feels like panic has just gripped everyone. No one is trained for this. You know, know, I'm sure that the Army is trained for something similar to this, (laughs) but I'm sure that um, it's different when it's actually happening. Human nature takes over. We see Lee, uh, we don't see, but we hear from Len Creighton again, who took over for Starkey. And you know what? Starkey knew this was going to happen. And I think Len did too. And there may still be some in denial, but really this is just a taste of what's happening all over the country. Um, even in a place like Shoyo, where everyone just sort of faded out so quietly and so quickly. And it's not always gunfire and explosion. Um, this is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. I think the end of this chapter left me feeling really drained emotionally. 
And it makes you wonder how quickly things could spiral out of control if this really happened. Um, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to get political and I'm not going to bring up, you know, stuff that's been happening to this country the last few years, but um, gaslighting is a very real thing. And they, the army and the president in this book try to do it to the American people. If the world begins to go to shit, but you still have soldiers carrying out orders, no matter how evil and horrible they are, um, they justify their actions somehow before moving on to the next horrible thing, lying to the American people, keeping something so dangerous a secret as long as possible as not to cause a panic. But it doesn't work. And you know what? Within a couple of days, the country is on fire, like literally on fire. The whole world, um, probably at this point, they do mention strains of the flu in London and Hong Kong. Um, so I wonder if that's just that was just said to placate people or if um, Starkey's men actually got it done and released the super flu overseas as well. King does a magnificent job of invoking terror in the reader with his chapter. Um, he is so effective at describing the carnage. Some of, you know, some of it, yes, was difficult to read. And you almost want to ask yourself, how can this happen? And, you know, in 2019, it would be much harder to hide what's really going on. It is hard to hide what's going on. With camera phones and social media, you know, news of Captain Trips would have probably spread a hell of a lot faster, even though this all happened, um, what, this has been like a week in the book. Chapter 26 chapters, and it's taken place, I think, over the course of a week. And then that last line of this chapter, Dear Jesus, I will see you soon, your friend America. P.S. I hope you will still have some vacancies by the end of the week. And that one sentence pretty much sums up the book so far. So what did you guys think of chapter 26? I would really like to hear your opinions. I mean, were you as disturbed as I was? Um, it took me a while to get through it. It really did. Uh, what did you think? Um, what do you think our main characters were up to while the world is burning around them? Has Stu made it out of Stovington? Is Franny's mother still alive? And what about Larry? Oh, yes, Larry. Well, Larry is still in New York City, in Central Park anyway, on the morning of June 27th. How do you think New York fared in all of this? Well, we're going to find out next week in Chapter 27. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, you can leave me a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or any platform where you listen to the show. Um, I appreciate every single review. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's already left me one. Um, and thank you guys um, for sticking with me in this chapter. I was, I, I try to be enthusiastic when I'm reading the, the um, synopsis and going through my thoughts. Um, but this chapter really kind of took it out of me. And I, if I was a little more dull, <laughs> I apologize. Um, it was a really rough one. But you know what? Things are starting to get a little crazy now. The end of the world is upon us. And the dark man is walking the streets. And we're going to see exactly uh, what he has in store for our characters coming up here in a very, sh very, very soon, actually. So, you know what? Hang in there. And thank you for continuing on this journey with me through the stand. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, I need to go have a drink because <laughs> uh, this chapter just did things to me, you guys. I can't tell you. Okay. Well, M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. Mm -hmm.